0: Welcome to the Shaping Champions podcast, a platform for discussion and exploration into what it takes to be a champion in life. We speak to athletes, entertainers, business people, and everyone in between about their journey and experiences, discovering the key ingredients needed to become successful at whatever it is you do. Please do subscribe to us at wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Shaping Champions Podcast. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Shaping Champions podcast, where we talk to various professionals across different fields about what it takes to shape present and future champions. I'm riding solo again this episode because I'm doing an in-person interview. I'm very excited about today's guest uh, who's someone I would consider to be a pioneer in their field. Having worked for some huge football clubs, including Birmingham City, West Brom, Aston Villa and Brentford, along with coaching team GB athletes at Olympic Games, it's safe to say this man is a seasoned professional with considerable expertise. He's also an author and executive business coach. I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Tom Bates.
1: How are you doing, Tom? Uh, very well, Jimmy. Thank you very much. That's all one fantastic introduction so much appreciated Um, delighted to be with you thanks for the invitation
0: most welcome the pleasure is all ours certainly so I'd like to start Tom with asking you what does it mean to you
1: to be a champion? yeah it's a wonderful question really being a champion Um, I've been thinking about that actually Uh, most recently across different sporting contexts at different levels Um, of course you know If we look at the nuts and bolts of being a champion, you could say that it's about winning gold, finishing first, winning the league, um, succeeding at the highest level of your competition, whatever that may be. But I think, for me, the definition of being a champion is slightly different. It's um, much more to do about really being able to reach your, your ultimate potential, to be able to express Yourself and unleash the very peaks of what you're capable of, um, not just in sport, but as you know, as a human being. So to go beyond previous levels that you perhaps thought weren't possible for you, to go from to shift from old self to new self, to attain new levels, to constantly improve technically, tactically, physically mentally, emotionally, personally, socially, spiritually, and everything that comes with being a fully functioning human being. So I know that's a pretty abstract definition, but really to, to unleash everything that you're capable of becoming and everything that you were born to be, that's being a champion.
0: It's an amazing definition. Uh, and description do you think that that's applicable to everybody in life
1: I think it is because whoever you are, whatever context you're in whatever sport you play or in business or in music or in art or in education um, we're all able to live a life of constant and never ending improvement and it's not about the outcome for me this idea of being a champion is less to do with whether you win gold or finish first or there's a great friend of mine who is an Olympian now also and is an athlete that I work with who offered me a phrase just recently, uh, there's nothing so cold as a gold medal and this is somebody who has been at the very peak of their powers and achieved things that in sport, that most others just dream about at the athletic competitive level. So it's interesting, to, it's fascinating to me that he's talking about we really go on a shift somewhere in our lives. Um, we shift from just thinking about, you know, if we just achieve that success, if we just get that gold medal, if we just get that number one spot in the league, if we just can win the cup, if we can just get that amount of money on our bank accounts, if we can just perform in front of this many people in our uh, concert, if we, I can just get that grade at the end of this exam, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be able to be, know what it is to be a champion. But the funny thing is that people who go on these journeys and have been very blessed and privileged to work with so many high achievers now, In multiple different contexts, multiple different sports, who end up telling me the same sort of story that there's, you know, nothing so cold as a gold medal, which means that happiness, success, being fulfilled in your life is less to do with the eventual achievement of the outcome and much more to do with who we become in the process of those things. Wayne Dyer is one of my favorite psychologists. He says, you know, the purpose of life is not to, when you dance, the dance of life is not to rush across the dance floor to get to the other side. No, the purpose of the dance of life is to enjoy each step, to be fully present in each step on the dance floor of life. And I just love that because there's nothing so cold as a gold medal. What does that really mean? It means that the outcome that we actually perceive will make us happy or fulfilled or be champions is actually not what helps us to be fulfilled. There's great wisdom in that. It's who we become in the process of striving towards the goals that we set for ourselves.
0: Certainly not the first time I've heard that for sure. And... Um, i mean i'm interested Tom, have you ever come across anybody who's perhaps learnt that lesson before they've reached that pinnacle or that landmark or that aim goal target that they'd set or, or is it generally that when they get there then it then dawns on them
1: very good question because it's different for everyone mm. there are so many different stories that from the athletes and coaches and teams and managers that I worked with but I would say that sometimes it's not success that reveals that wisdom to us sometimes it's pain defeat falling short of what it is that we think is success Um, because very often I mean I remember just personal story working with Aston Villa first team Uh, we get to the championship player final versus Fulham at Wembley, we lose 1-0 and therefore have another season in the championship and have desperately, that's deemed failure for a club that size, right? Um, But out of that failure, so many transformational lessons arose for every single one of us as a staff, as a coaching team, but also the players. And so sometimes pain and defeat and loss can crack open that shell of superficial outcome-based thinking.
0: (laughs) And that's an integral part of the process, isn't it? You know, for anybody who's aiming to be an elite performer in whatever field, that going through that process, experiencing those things, is all part, an integral part of developing your character um, and developing the, the champion that you want to go on to become, I guess. 100%
1: Jimmy, you know, it's not, I love to say really that it's our response to the setbacks. If we talk about what is competitive toughness in sport, disciplined thinking, disciplined action, under pressure and fatigue, it's a great definition that i like to carry with me. That the key part of that is also in the face of the setback, you know, it's this idea of sustained disciplined thinking and disciplined action. That's the birthplace of real character. Because until we face these setbacks, you know, it's impossible to tell how strong the foundation of our character really is. And oftentimes, if character has not been formed well enough, then it's not just defeat, it's also the successes that can become too much for us. We don't know how to respond to them this amount of money, this amount of media attention, this amount of and character, if it's not formed with substance early, then eventually we learn some lessons the hard way.
0: <laughs> and in, in your experience, Tom, is there, is there any other way of going about instilling those qualities in a
1: person's character
0: other than them um, having to just experience those things?
1: I think the, the sporting organisations that do this very well, and we've discussed some of them previously, um, understand that the formation of sort of the green shoots of character can be signposted uh, uh, along with the technical, tactical, physical development programmes that exist from a very young age. For the, in a football academy, for example, there's the youth foundation phase so these children that come into and out of our care can absolutely learn about the values that sport has to teach us. Overcoming adversity, working as a team cohesively together, contributing to somebody else. Those sort of life values can be taught well from a very young age. <laughs> and, it's the, and, and in clubs where this happens well, players do get the opportunity to grow their character alongside the physical, technical, tactical development. Because if we think about how many players don't make it at a professional level, I think Calvin did some research not so long ago and came out with some statistics around how many grassroots players participate from the age of seven, one point something million. And then when they get to the the chances of them getting to the Premier League from when they start out is something like 0.012. I mean, that's, so my question then is about, okay then, so if that's the small proportion of players that make it to that level, what do, we, what do we teach them? The masses of those young people, boys and girls, that come into and out of our care whilst they're with us, you see, what happens to those guys? And how do we use sport as a vehicle to teach those values. That in the end becomes, for me, one of the most, if not the most, important parts of, of working with young people.
0: And you, we, we spoke um, off mic about some of the incredible work you're doing with your foundation. We'll come back to that in a little while. Um, I'm just interested to, to follow on from that last question. So some of the things you mentioned there around i mean overcoming adversity aside but around sort of like teamwork and how we can help each other those kind of values um you know they they seem specifically linked to team sport perhaps when it comes to individual athletes obviously you've worked with some team gb athletes in um in very high pressure situations you know what are the kind of qualities that you can instill in in those sports people that are working you know on an individual basis um in what can perhaps be a very lonely space at times, I imagine.
1: Most definitely, especially in individual sports as well. Um, And so my work with those guys at that level is... Because these athletes are athletes who have, to a degree, um, attained the peak of their potential in sport. And so, specifically, I'm recruited to work with those athletes at that level to help them navigate the competitive arena and the potential pressure um, that can exist at the Olympic Games, at the World Championships, and so to help them successfully navigate that mental and emotional landscape to succeed. And that's about helping them to learn and practice mental and emotional training tools, strategies, techniques to self-regulate in the arena, which is... You know, all else being equal, mindset defines performance. So if we work backwards and we say, okay, mindset is a vital part of performance at that level. Is it possible to train mindset? Can we improve mentally and emotionally? And of course the answer is yes. So then it's about helping them to practice, learn and apply these key techniques. And some of them uh, are very simple, you know, things like uh, breath work, being consciously aware of our breathing and the process of visualisation and that's a really interesting one because you know for a long time there's been this criticism of techniques like this Uh, and uh, science has really said well come on then where's the evidence well now we're at a really exciting time because we can actually science has caught up to a degree and can now prove that that process of visualisation is a very scientific one you know So we can look at the cortical mapping, the neurological pathways, the synapse function, the myelination process. That's what neuroplasticity is, right? The brain changes over time with certain practices in certain environments. So this idea that visualization to the brain is two thirds the same as when we physically perform for real. Well, that's a very exciting place to be, isn't it? Because that means that you can practice in the mind, literally, and these mental muscles it's like if you go to the gym and you work out on a Monday and you never go back until Friday, you'd say, well, where are the results, Tom? I'd say, well, okay, then, Jimmy, did you go Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday? And you'd say, well, no, I didn't. I went Monday and Friday. So we'd probably say, well, there's not going to be that many results from that, right? But if we integrate the process and practice of these mental muscles, the training techniques and tools, and we integrate them within our practice every single day, then the muscle gets stronger and stronger and stronger. So confidence, self-belief, motivation, the ability to focus under pressure. If that's integrated in our practice every day, then those mental muscles, they get stronger and stronger and stronger. And then it becomes a subconscious process. This natural, effortless, fluent, automatic process of performing is very, it's actually non-thinking. It's the process of thinking less and flowing more, you know, so that typified by subconscious competence. And at that level, those guys are really that's what makes them elite in this in their sporting world.
0: Really interesting. Um, It reminds me of Michael Phelps. I'm sure you're probably aware of his routine pre-swim, you know, pre-competition. it, and it got to the point where his coach would just have to say to him run the tape Michael because it was just like a videotape in his mind visual visualization was such a key um, integral component of his preparation and um, same with football as well you know I, I sometimes when we do football camps I'll read out some quotes from Ronaldinho or, or, or Messi and the and the the one that gets people is the Rooney one where he talks about I wouldn't just visualise dribbling around a whole team and scoring a, a top corner goal from outside the box I would visualise and imagine what the grass smelt like when I walked out onto the pitch and um, what colour kit I was wearing that day how my socks felt when I put them on you know all those tiny intricate details and um, you know young, young people hear that and they think well that's crazy what, why was he doing that well because he wants to put himself in that moment so that when he gets there it feels like he's been there before and he, he, he's, he's just playing out something that's already happened almost you know um, fascinating conversation already I'm getting very excited folks um, but I just want to sort of come back to so you know I I'd sort of introduced you there Tom but didn't really describe what your kind of primary role is which is a, a performance psychologist am I right Yes. Um, so you know you work with elite athletes and and sporting organisations in that role could you give us an insight uh, give give our audience an insight into what that involves
1: yeah um, so I guess from the Premier League in in this country championship divisions um, the Olympics that we've talked about uh, and work in rugby league and a little bit in boxing um, fencing and golf, a few other sports, as well as business. Um, My role is really to help people um, perform at their peak mentally and emotionally. That's really in its most simplistic form. And so very oftentimes we have these incredibly skilled individuals, whether it's in, doesn't matter, sport, business, music, education, the story, sort of, the pattern sort of emerges again and again. Very talented, extremely driven, people who are excellent at what they do. However, haven't managed to develop the skill set psychologically to cope with the high pressure cooker of the front line, whether it be the competitive arena, crossing the white line onto the pitch, the track, the pool, the boardroom, you know. To navigate successfully through the emotional turbulence that can come with those roles is something that hasn't really, up to this point, been taught to athletes or coaches or teams or managers across the the spectrum. So, there's over the probably last 15 years been a great growth and development of understanding peak performance, how the work of and science of psychology can help individuals to navigate that space. But it's, in essence, it's very simple. It's being able to see the world through the eyes of the person that I'm working with, understand the landscape and uniquely tailor a set of strategies and programs that best help them to respond and prepare for the demands that they face.
0: And do do you have a a favourite type of athlete person, um, <laughs> <laughs>
1: you know, professional that you like to work with, someone, or are you, you know, do do you love just working with people? It's it's funny because um, you know the e- my ego wants to come out and say, um, <laughs> yeah, the ones that can learn the fastest and put these, b- <laughs> um, but actually, of course, no, it's it's much deeper and wider than that. I think it's just a pure, it's a joy really. It's a joy to to be uh, on a sort of philosophical level, Jimmy. Um, You know, people talk about the job that they do and sometimes that's separate from who they are. And for me, I can really say that I'm very, very blessed because what I do is really who I am. So I guess I'm never fully, I don't ever see it as that I'm working. I'm just here being who I am in every environment, in any environment. So I think my favorite, I I can't say that I have a favorite. I tell you, my favorite is a human being who is in search of constant everyday improvement. And sometimes that includes people that don't even know that they can which is even more beautiful because you get to help shape and change a whole entire belief system, which might, and sometimes that happens very young, and sometimes it happens with clients who are older, a lot, a lot more advanced in their years. So it's really not an age thing, it's just a joy to be able to work with people, human beings that are in search of, we talked about that definition of being a champion earlier, but it's really about helping people. It's a, it's a labor of love, it's really a service. I know it's, that sounds quite profound and deep and philosophical, but it's true for me. That's why I do what I do. And so I can't really say that I've got favorites other than my favorite thing to do is to help people.
0: Um, it reminds me of, of something a friend of mine told me once. Um... You know, we can only truly become the person that we're destined to be by helping others to become the person they're truly destined to be, you know. Yeah, it's, it's, and, and you can, it's really shining through, Tom, as well, that, you know, you say that um, your work is just who you are and you are just being you, and, and that, that really does come through. So I'd love to dig in a little bit to some of the football clubs that you've worked with. You know, some of the most well-established and historic football clubs in the country. I'm interested to, to know, what do you think separates those that succeed from those that don't, particularly perhaps from a psychological standpoint?
1: Well, particularly in football, compared to many other sports, um, there's a lot of wonderful things about football, but one of its drawbacks, one of its biggest areas for improvement is to the capacity to be able to think differently. So I can speak about Brentford because out of all the clubs that I've ever worked for, those, and Matthew Benham is the owner now and was then when I was working there, he recruited me. And he just had a vision of being courageous and bold enough to think differently. Because the thing is, most people think the same way and expect different results. And it, of course, doesn't work like that. So the beginning is to be courageous enough To think differently that's a huge competitive advantage but one of the forces that keeps us blocked and stuck is fear because that's the way we've always done it so clubs with huge traditions and heritage can often link themselves back to the past and say but that's the way we've always done it so therefore that's the way we're always going to do it well that's great but you're not going to get better results you know it's the definition of insanity isn't it to do the same thing over and over again and expect different results it's never going to happen so then what do we need we need to be brave enough to think differently brentford when i when they recruited me had a kicking specialist polish kicking specialist italian set piece coach uh, danish head of football philosophy dutch head coach and assistant coach english performance like me So it was a little bit like a meeting at the UN, you know, my first (laughs) (laughs) meeting with the first team staff. Um, But I quickly realized that that diversity created innovative thinking. And also, we couldn't outspend other clubs. So we had to outthink. And that created a very humble, hardworking, honest, innovative environment where the culture was sort of just grew and grew and we explored different ideas about how can we do this differently what else can we learn from this is there a better way to think you know those three questions alone um, sort of made up the cultural framework of the club so I would say that that's certainly one of the ingredients that can help clubs succeed moving forward
0: and am I right in thinking that it's Phil Giles that's the yeah. chief exec there, who, who doesn't have a, a background in football?
1: Really? No, no, no. Phil, yeah. well, I mean, I'm not too sure what Phil's previous history is, other than the fact that he's been at Brentford now for, what, 10, 15 years? Something like that. So, um, Rasmus Ankerson was the sort of second director of football that recruited. Me, whilst I was at Brentford, and Phil was the first. So they sort of dual-rolled the, the uh, director of football part of the football club. And um, Phil just, I remember being this very, very intricate, methodical, strategic thinker, uh, searching for the details, very equipped to piece together the small pieces of the puzzle, uh, connecting the staff very well to make sure that it was a well-oiled machine multidisciplinary approach in lots of different ways throughout the football club from the academy all the way up to the top although of course they don't have an academy now Um, but Phil was very conscious of each step along the way you know he was someone that was able to pull and is someone that's able to pull each piece of the puzzle together intricately to make it work and has had great success and I'm sure will continue to do so and I've heard Phil talk about in the
0: past this idea that Brentford are not fully focused or solely focused on the outcome it's much more about the input and the underpinning performances you know, and I think that's so important to hear because football being a results-based business everyone is just that. that is the one point of focus isn't it um, we, you know, if we lose it's a disaster, it's failure And it seems like Brentford are taking a different approach and you'd have to say reaping the rewards from that, you know, it's
1: brilliant, brilliant, a different way of thinking, you know. It's liberating, isn't it? Mm. It's sort of this idea that the result that we seek comes to us. The more that we, you know, are just fascinated in the process every day of becoming better in every way. And measuring performance not just on whether we got three points or not. But what about the process? What about the performance goals that we set ourselves? You know, some of those things might include, well, did I if I'm a striker for example, let's just take one position. Something that we talked about a lot is what are the what are the key parts of that role? But if the striker doesn't score in a game, traditionally, his or her mood is a result of the outcome. I didn't score and therefore I'm unhappy, or I'm disappointed or fill in the blank of the emotion, right? But if, however, you measure your performance based on how many runs did I make in behind successfully? Did I create the passing channel? How many times did I link with the midfield? How many times did I close down and win the ball back for my team in transition? All of a sudden, tick, 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 tick. Now now my emotion is very different because scoring a goal is just one part, one piece of the puzzle. But then something else wonderful happens because it liberates me from the pressure and the stress of only thinking I need to score a goal to fulfill my duty for the team. So then you get this freedom that prevails. A sort of psychological liberation takes place and the player expresses themselves freely because they're no longer imprisoned by the outcome-based thinking. And that's when the team starts to um, with that shared mentor model in every position across the football club, then the result just becomes the final piece of the puzzle. You know, the result that we seek, seeks us. It comes to us. So, and it seems to be working, you know, they're punching well above their weight and it's great to see. Absolutely, yeah.
0: So when you work with individual athletes, could you, give us an insight a flavor of what are the commonalities that you see amongst athletes um, perhaps from different uh, different sports uh, different disciplines in terms of the techniques that they apply
1: or their preparation so commonalities really at the level that i'm working at in sport now is that they all want to win they're all hugely driven individuals who have made it to a very few perform at that level consistently, week in, week out. Be that rugby, be that football, be that the Olympic games, they they all are hugely driven individuals. So there's a commonality. Probably a difference is that some are motivated by different things some are still motivated to achieve the trophy, for example, to a higher proportion than those who may be intrinsically motivated. A commonality is though is that whatever your motivation, they are hugely motivated. So the basic premise is there's a real fire, and determination, and burning drive, to consistently get better every day in every way. Do you do you see that as
0: intrinsic? Or do you think that that's something that they've built and developed throughout their journey?
1: Well, it's a fascinating question because, like I said, a difference between them is sometimes it's intrinsic, sometimes it's extrinsic. Sometimes uh, there are footballers that I work with who are hugely driven by the financial reward at the end of that season or the contract that might be available. And I'm not here to say whether that's good or bad, I'm just saying that that is part of their drive. Other athletes, however, um, who still get stratospheric financial rewards for their performances, right, are definitely intrinsically driven. And so we see this sort of difference in types of motivation. Um, I would say the the more enduring motivation is intrinsic because it's less dependent upon the outcome as we've just talked about with Brentford. And it also liberates you from a type of stress associated with only thinking about the outcome or the trophy. Because, you know, I love this phrase in sport, it's possible to win even when you lose. And sometimes people look at me and say, what the hell does that mean? That doesn't make sense at all. What are you talking about? You know, I've had players say that to me. (laughs) We just lost the game. What are you talking about? Well, how can I be a winner? (laughs) You know, I say, listen, we'll get a coffee in the week and we'll talk about it. (laughs) But it's possible to lose even when you win. If you flip the coin on that, it's possible to win even when you lose. But it's possible to lose even when you win. I just want to let that sink in for everybody
0: that hears that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm going to... And I need to take some time to process that. Coming back to this idea of drive uh, being intrinsic, perhaps, for some, where do you think that comes from, Tom? Where does it start? I mean, I know it's a big
1: question. It's a great question. I think, for most part, um, it starts very early in our childhood. Um, it's a question that I think about quite a lot because there is this idea that if you are born into an environment with certain parents or in a certain environment with coaches or you're part of a team early on then that environment ends up being the thing that produces you as a winner and of course it'd be very easy to come to that conclusion because we think that we're products of our environments and to a degree that's true but if you look at the biographical histories of any elite sporting performer you'll see that they come from all different types of backgrounds. Some who are born into wealthy families, some who are born into families with absolutely nothing, single parents, different geographical locations, different access to sporting facilities, sometimes have everything, sometimes have nothing. And all the way on that continuum, there's athletes dotted around different places. So so then we have to say, well, actually, it's not about the environment or the people or the... Um, Situations that we're around, so much as it is something that's inside of the person. Because if you study a sample of children from one environment, they'll show you all different types of success if you want to measure it in terms of sporting success, right? So then we say, but they all came from the same environment, so why did that academy, for example, not produce? as many players as they did maybe there's one right in one group so we say okay so why were there not 12 because they were all in the same environment so then we say then it can't be the environment it must be something inside the individual you see I think when I say it starts very early a child becomes gains a sense of Self, independence, very early on. Um, there's a sense of knowing who I am, w- you know, where I want to go in my life. I'm speaking just now, just about myself. I come from a working class family. First in my family to go to university um, ever. Uh, I don't say that to impress anyone. Um, I say that just to make a, a, f- a frame of reference. So here's this child that grows up with a frame of reference that with no one around him who has gone on academically let's just say first of all but there's something there was something else inside me saying i want to do this this is part of me there's a curiosity here i'm listening to that inner voice i'm curious i'm i want to follow that with passion and i it's not about knowing where it's going to take you either so anybody that's listening to this thinking to themselves you know perhaps there's more to me perhaps there's more that i can give more that i can do more that i can develop more that i can become it's not necess- it's not about seeing martin luther king said you don't have to see the whole staircase just take the first step i love that just take the first step follow the intuitive inner voice that says to you i'm interested i'm passionate I'm curious what else can I learn about this? That's a very powerful intrinsic process that I think children are extremely good at. <laughs> Perhaps better than adults.
0: <laughs> yeah, because there's no thoughts getting in the way, there's no fear getting in the way, there's you know. Yeah, I think we're, you know, we're touching on some profound stuff here in some ways and I know you're a religious person as well Tom and I, you know, I'm very spiritual myself um, and I think that we could, we could perhaps spend all day talking about the external forces that are, are at work here and I think you know, what you've shared so far is, uh, is going to be really impactful for a lot of people listening so I you know, just want to extend my thanks at this point we've got to talk about the Sheffield Wednesday playoff <laughs> Wow, game, you know, because I know you were involved. Um, so I'd love to, to hear all about it, you know, as much as you're able to tell us, you know, what, what was your involvement? How did you become involved?
1: Yeah, I mean, first of all, for anybody listening, thinking about what is, what is Jimmy talking about, Sheffield Wednesday became just recently the first team ever in the history of Football League to overcome the biggest deficit in a semi-final first leg, which was 4-0 down to Peterborough away from home, to come back, equalise in normal time, to go 4-4, to take the game into extra time, only for Peterborough to score again in extra time, to go 5-4 up. And then, in the depths of the last throws of the game, Sheffield Wednesday equalise again to take it 5-5 before we eventually go and win on penalties at Hillsborough. To get to Wembley and beat Barnsley 1 0 in the, cha- in the, the uh, playoff final to get to, to the championship. So, my involvement in that process was actually um, an extremely privileged one because I've been working with the team for the last 18 months, actually, um, on and off as a consultant, working with the first team and the players and the manager and the coaching staff. So, um, m- my relationship with Sheffield Wednesday is quite a special one, you know. Um, it's the first time ever that any of the clubs that I've been at that so many of the fans have reached out to me personally to just say thank you um, across the social channels and emails. and um, So I just want to say thank you to anyone that's associated with Sheffield Wednesday Football Club. The fans are a tremendous, tremendous force and um, it's a special club. It really is. Um, the, the players take all the credit because they're the ones that performed and and did it. But my involvement really was to, to be, be a belief partner. A belief partner to the players, a belief partner to the, to the manager to lead sessions with the players both in squad and one-to-one. To train the penalties when we were 4-0 down from the very first day that we were back in training so we set up the penalty shootout and one of the players who remain nameless at this stage on Monday says to me why on earth are we practicing well actually there's a few beeps in there so i can't actually say what he said but why on earth are we practicing penalties on a monday we're four nil down uh and then on tuesday we practice the penalties again and he said you know i still don't see the point of this but i'll give it a go wednesday comes and all right listen i'll do this and i'll focus properly now but i'm still not sure about it thursday comes no, I can understand now why, why, we're, why we're doing this Friday. Tom, I'm so glad that we've practiced these penalties every single day. <laughs> but even the structure, you know, I can share with you some things. We set up the speakers um, to replicate the crowd noise. We had members of staff and academy players stand behind the goals. We had five players in each team at stand in the centre circle. We had a referee only in the penalty area. And we did a lot of work on controlling the clock and controlling ourselves and controlling that moment controlling your emotional state via breathing or self-talk or owning your process mentally and emotionally to perform in that moment. So when it went to penalties, believe it or not, Jimmy, I was, I actually knew we'd win because the players that were selected right at the end were the players that had succeeded and taken control of their own process Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So I knew that we'd prepared for everything and That's one of the things about elite performance. You can't have elite performance. You can't have excellence in performance without excellence in preparation. So the whole club driven by the manager, Darren Moore, who, again, was courageous enough to think differently and to prepare in detail and to empower and instill a belief in everyone that it's possible and that's the great thing about the game because we live in a world largely speaking especially in modern day society anyway that has to see before they believe and not only that but we want instant gratification we're in a tiktok society if it's not if i don't get the gem or the wisdom in 3 seconds then i'm out but that's not what learning is that's what that's not what development is that's not what we're designed for Um, And that's not how success happens. Um, It's a constant everyday building of confidence and responding to the setbacks. That's sport, but that's also life. So the manager drove belief. I was a belief partner, really an extension of his voice and his values and the culture. With Barry Bannon, the captain, who I have to say is one of the best leaders on the pitch in a club I've ever worked with. Because he was, again, one of the cultural architects, a belief partner in the dressing room to transfer the message to everyone else. And essentially, by the time we got to Hillsborough, there wasn't a single player in that dressing room who didn't believe that it it wasn't possible. We were full of belief. Every single player, every single staff member fully believed and had prepared solidly for performance. So, but when we scored the first goal in the opening 13 minutes, we knew that that was part of the game plan. To be 2-0 up at half-time was very much part of our game plan, breaking the game down into segments of time. So third goal goes in and that's in the time frame that we set out and everybody's like, okay, so this is part of the plan. This was always going to happen. This is what we planned for. This is what we prepared for. We're right where we need to be. So we're playing with composure and confidence.
0: It was all unfolding as you'd imagined, essentially.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why when we went to penalties, it's the most confident I've ever been in my entire career as a coach. Because, I mean, if you study them back and you watch, the whole entire process of the body language of our players compared to theirs is just remarkable difference how we're standing even in the centre circle how connected the players are how upright they are how full of confidence and belief it's like this is this is exactly what we planned for you know and funnily enough the player that said to me on the Monday why on earth we're practising penalties afterwards said gotta tell you didn't really believe at the start didn't know why we were doing it but thank God we did it
0: (laughs) brilliant absolutely brilliant and listen Tom, thanks a lot for doing my job for me by informing our audience exactly what I was going on about when I just said, right, the Sheffield Wednesday <laughs> thing. Can you just tell us about that? Um, but yeah, I mean, what a remarkable game, what a remarkable turnaround. Just absolutely incredible. Really interested. I mean, you, you, you sort of outlined that, that one particular player who perhaps wasn't buying in from the start, but were the rest of the team in general, were they buying in from, from the outset? Um, and, and also, you know, did, did, you have a, did you just have a real gut feeling that Shiffle that Wednesday were going to do it even after that first
1: leg? Yeah, I have to say I did. And um, one of the, one of the um, catalysts of that was having a conversation with the manager very, very early the next day in the morning and also the captain on the phone very early the next morning because they were driven to understand exactly what happened the night before. Because we can't just say, we're just going to believe now that it's possible. No, we have to understand and process what happened. And why did it happen? And the conclusion of that reflection was, well, they didn't actually do anything special. We beat ourselves last night. We're the ones that gave the game to them because we did this, this and this so therefore we're in control to do that differently if we do that differently when we do that differently the outcome will be completely different so that's a very grounded empowering place to start and then the critical thing is that when you've got the two leaders the manager and the captain who both heavily um, buy into this type of work then you reach a tipping point You, you sort of there's a leverage that gets created to transfer that message to the dressing room and to the rest of the staff. It's very difficult for someone in my position to do that from the bottom upwards, to try to have to convince the leaders. Um, That's why wherever I work now, um, I work because the leaders themselves recruit me into the position that I'm in. So one of the things that really helps is Understanding exactly what happened the night before. Understanding what we need to do to put in place to do that differently next time. And then understanding that we need to invest in the preparation required to do these things properly. And be brave enough to dare to believe that it's possible. And why not? There were so many people that said it couldn't be done. So we studied lots of different sporting teams, military situations, and we shared that with the team. This was another situation where so many people said it couldn't be done. The naysayers, you know. There's a wonderful clip, actually it's on my Instagram, of um, I think it's Don Goodman from Sky responding live when the fourth goal goes in at Peterborough. And the question the other commentator asked him is, is it, is it now over? And I think Don says something like um, 3-0 was a mountain, but 4-0 is a mountain that will be insurmountable. And then the Sheffield Wednesday Media boys have put that together, you know, (laughs) and then clipped up all the four goals that we score at Hillsborough. And then there's a wonderful part, the commentator says, this is a playoff miracle. You know, and to be honest, faith also played a big part. At the centre of that was our faith. There's a number of... Um, Christians at the club and so we you know we didn't just work but also prayed Hmm. and faith was in the center of what we did so just a real joy to be a part of and and see the boys succeed I thought it was going to go to penalties again at Wembley I was five seconds away from doing my job and helping to select the five kick takers and then of course Gregors crosses it with five seconds to go and Josh Windas heads the ball home and the rest is history yeah what a goal in the final, there delighted and, and, yeah, for the boys. Just,
0: uh, just an incredible story, game, uh, moment in sport in history, you know. And and what a privilege to say that you were a part of that. Absolutely. So, com- coming towards the end of the the podcast now, Tom, just want to uh, wrap up with a couple of key questions. So, a lot of my work now is around character development, and I'm heavily invested in that. And I'm interested to, to hear from you what would you say are the key characteristics that athletes and high-performing people must, like, need to have in place in order to perform at an elite level?
1: So, a couple spring to mind straight away as a priority. i thinking about those that I currently work with and drawing patterns. One of them is this capacity to want to consistently, constantly learn and improve. There's an internal commonality with all of these elite athletes and people that they're constantly looking to improve every single day, no matter what, even after they succeed, even at the peak of their powers. So it's always about this search for improvement. The second one is that when we're speaking about character, I think it's very important from an early age to be exposed to a number of different environments, some which you're gonna win lots, some which you're gonna lose, some you're gonna succeed and thrive, and others will be extremely challenging. Um, In a football context, that's probably like, you know, playing up an age group, and it's gonna be more physical for you. An under-11s player playing an under-13s game, for example, or it could be that you played down an age group and you get tremendous success as part of your development because you're on the ball all the time. Or so this idea of navigating and being exposed to a number of different environments where you're going to win and lose. In, in in quotes win and lose, you know, outcome of the game, for example. But then the other thing about that is that. I mean, I remember going to Uganda as a 16-year-old to take part in, you know, community work with street children and help, help build in schools and churches and hospitals and stuff. It was a Christian mission. But actually, that environment from a very early age sort of shaped my character because I was around people who had very little and completely outside of my comfort zone in a different country in the world where the culture was just extremely different I learned so much about my own world map, you know, the way I viewed the world, just completely shifted because I was outside of my normal environment. So I think when we speak about character development, it doesn't have to necessarily just be in sport. It can be in other environments. And that helps to shape the character of the person, the personality, our perspective, our perception of who we are and what this, you know, where our place is and It also gave me a good understanding of how richly blessed I was because of the extreme luxuries that I've got really in the West here compared to what I saw out there. You know, so I just became very grateful really about everything, much more grateful. And still now contribute to those charities in lots of different ways. So is that part of my own character development as a child, absolutely, yeah. And then, of course, you know, there's the sort of... How do I say? Less planned, uh, natural, organic experiences that we go through in life that will come to us and teach us (laughs) certain things, right? And these aren't necessarily... These haven't been pre-selected by a coach, you know? They just... Life comes along and kicks you in the guts sometimes and that (laughs) helps (laughs) in so many different ways. So, then, okay, how do I respond to this challenge in my life now? And that search intrinsically, in the absence of a coach or teacher, that situation becomes the teacher. And it hasn't necessarily been pre-selected by a coach, you know? It's just life. Probably then, if you trace each success story back, you find someone who has one or two key people in the lives of those individuals who has played a significant part in helping them to believe that it's possible. My own was my grandfather. He was Second World War, uh, Red Beret, so Red Devil, paratrooper, who would sit me down and tell me so many stories about his experiences in in the war. And he was my real life and is hero to me. Um, So you tend to find somebody that's shaped the life of that person who is really significant to them and I think that's a a real key ingredient it's one of the things that I say to coaches and teachers all the time that it's a it's a huge huge privilege to be called coach in a young person's life Um, and and when children are in our care you know there's a survey done not so long ago 25,000 kids up and down the country from the ages between 9 and 12 I think and they asked who is the most important person in your life. So he had sports coach, mum and dad, uncle and auntie, teacher. The sports coach came out as number one for about 63%, 65% of the of the responses. So it's and you know that's quite interesting, isn't it? Because well then we say, okay, so why is that? Well then the coach or the sports coach is tremendous privilege, but also significant influence in the lives of young people. So Those are a couple of ingredients maybe that that are part of the journey. Unique to everyone, different for everyone. Um, That's the other great thing, you see. There's so many different routes to get there, wherever there is for you. Everyone has their own path. And then the final ingredient that I have to say is there's an inner sense that what I'm striving towards is possible for me. Even though there's no physical proof around me right now, right? There's just this incredible strong sense that this is what I'm meant to be. And sometimes I can't explain it. Sometimes I don't know where it comes from, but I can tell you that it's there and it's the driving force and it's not going to go away Mm. (laughs) so I better listen to it (laughs) and and that's a real key ingredient because um, and you see it in these children you see and really as adults that's really what we are we're big kids (laughs) you know it's really we're all still children you know we use posh words and try and make our sound sound intelligent but really we're just all kids
0: <laughs> yeah I was listening to a talk yesterday um, by a, a really popular sort of YouTube figure called Sad Guru um, really really interesting stuff and he was talking about how you know essentially we all just walk around with masks on but some of us can take the mask off and put it down and there's yeah. some of us who can't take that mask off once it's on You know, um, but I mean, you've delivered some really profound messages today, Tom, and and, and ideas. You know, such a blessing to have you on the podcast. Um, Just to wrap up, is there a a key kind of finishing point that you'd like to leave the listeners with or maybe um, a text that you direct people to or, you know, anything that that really had a a profound impact on your life that, that people might also have access to? Um, or could
1: seek out yeah there's, there's a number of different books that I recommend and it um, uh, doesn't matter also where you are what age you are, boy, girl, man, woman um, culture, language country you're in, some some of these wonderful resources exist so um, Be Your Own Life Coach is a tremendous book that I read early on by Fiona Harold. Be Your Own Life Coach, there's some lovely simple exercises that people can do in there um, another one but a book that changes lives by Dan Millman um, it's called Way of the Peaceful Warrior Way of the Peaceful Warrior by Dan Millman um, Stillness Speaks by Eckhart Tolle it's a, wonderful, it's a wonderful book I mean I could go on and on and on with so many different resources um, because there are just so many great teachers uh, and, and resources that are out there but I think the one thing that I would say is probably to finish on is to steal a phrase from, from Goethe um, uh, boldness possesses magic begin it now Boldness possesses magic. Begin it now. Theodore Roosevelt said "Um, the future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams. The future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams. So when you're bold and you believe in the power of your dream, every single day, no matter what, despite there being no physical evidence... Of that being possible when you stay true to the power of that internal voice it's inevitable that you will eventually manifest that dream continue to listen to that voice continue to believe continue to work on your dream even if and especially when it's difficult and one day you're going to wake up and your dream will have come to you
0: Beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And Tom, where can people follow you, find you, tune into what you're doing, contact you? And don't forget to tell us about your own book.
1: <laughs> yeah, all the socials. I'm out there. You'll find me. Um, and uh, the book is called The Future Coach, available on Amazon. So it's been a real pleasure. Tom, the
0: pleasure's all ours. Thank you so much. We can take our dreams.